The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Spirit, we just sang and expressed our hope to You that You would speak. I'm about to speak, but if You don't speak, we will not hear life-changing words. So we sing this and we pray it, and, and I, I hope that we mean it. As we ask you, would you please speak? And I want to ask you, myself in particular, I want to ask you, God, would you right now search through us, move through our midst here right now, and and speak to us at this moment about anything that might stand in between us and you, any sin that we need to deal with, to confess, to, to put away under your cross. Speak that to us and lead us to relinquish it and to repent of it. And in its place, Father, would You enthrone Your Spirit. And may He have His way in us fully to illumine our minds and our hearts. God, send Him in power. Send Him to hover over Your Word here in our midst and breathe life into us. Speak. We have a text here this morning, Lord, with which I believe You mean to teach us about Your church and ministers in it. So please give life to those words and teach. Be the speaker. Be the shepherd and the guide that leads Your people to water that gives life. We need You. So, Spirit of God, I ask You to run through this room right now and own each of us and give life to my heart and give life to my words that they would be Yours. We exist for Your glory, which is an awesome and beautiful and good thing because Your glory is exactly what we need. It is exactly what fills our hearts with hope and joy. And so would you communicate some of your beauty and some of your wonder to us this morning and bless us. Use this passage, I pray, for the honor of Christ and for the good of His people here. In His name we pray it. Amen. As we come to 1 Corinthians, the middle of chapter 3 today, we are still in in Paul's sustained discussion, his sustained argument about the significant problem of division that faced the church in Corinth and faces every church that's full of people. Which means it's our issue as well. And when I say that, I, I don't want to paint either too gloomy of a picture or, or be naive. When we look at division or discord as Paul addresses it, sometimes that is a division that is, that is faction set against each other and openly warring. And sometimes it's just one person kind of out of sorts with another. And both of those things are issues that we face here in this church from time to time. Groups of people or individuals in conflict. And sometimes it's just somebody who avoids another person in the hallway because they can't really quite get along with them. That's reality here. I don't mean to say that the whole church is about to fall apart, but let's not be naive. We face challenge and discord because the real issue behind challenge and discord and conflict is the fact that we human beings are prone to walk away from the gospel, to forget it, to leave it. Not officially, we still affirm it. We're Christians. But we move. We've moved from 
seeing God and all that He has done for us in Christ and, and seeing His love for us and having that change us that we love Him back and love others as He loves them, we leave that and we move over here to walk according to the flesh, loving ourselves. That happens to us. Last week we looked at chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, and saw Paul describing and speaking to Christians who have the Spirit in them, who have the mind of Christ given to them, who yet walk away and wander according to the flesh, loving themselves and not God and others. And it creates all kinds of problems. Paul pointed that out last week. We talked about it, and he has been repeatedly emphasizing it and going back to that which is the real solution, the Gospel trying to to undergird and to reinforce and talk about it forwards and backwards and up and down and in and out, Christ and Him crucified. And to set the Christian mind on that. We've seen that again and again. And this morning, still addressing that issue, he begins another solution to the issue of following after Paul or following after Apollos, making factions that are divided and at war. Another solution he begins to address this morning and will for a couple of weeks is the sheer folly of worshiping people. Of worshiping mere ministers. We'll see that this morning in verses 5 to 17. And I use the word minister very carefully. I'm going to use it all throughout this morning. And let me explain why I'm using that word rather than a more specific word like apostle or pastor or evangelist. What we're going to see this morning is that there is a distinction. There are a couple of different categories that Paul is very clearly working with. Minister, the two examples he cites, an apostle and a pastor. And congregation, the church. There are two distinct categories that he's working with. So I want to be clear about that and we'll, and we'll talk about that. But I also, I'm using the word minister rather than apostle or pastor because I want it to kind of stay in our minds that there is some application to all of us here, which we'll talk about, but I want to keep using a word minister that kind of keeps you engaged. This is about me, isn't it? This is about me, isn't it? And we'll see how it is. So, what we have here is, is a passage before us. I'm going to read verses 5 to 17. I think what God through Paul means to teach us is the proper perspective of God's ministers in the church. That's where we're going this morning. Let me read the passage. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 17. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in you. That's plural, in you all. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you all are that temple. The Word of the Lord. The bulk of the passage obviously consists of of two main analogies. 
They're saying essentially the same thing with some slight nuances, and we're going to move in to make a couple of general observations, but I first want to be sure that we understand the, the facts, because there are a few things here that we need to be pretty clear on if we're going to understand the passage. So let's look at these analogies, and let's start with the agricultural analogy. Really, it's almost a parable with, with the different parties taking different parts. You've got Paul and, and Apollos. They take the part of the, the workers in the field. They have, they have different jobs, he says. But verse 8, they are one in their work. They're, they are working towards a common goal. They are united, working together under God as fellow workers in verse 9. Co-laborers of God's. So that analogy is pretty clear. You've got men working in the field, doing different jobs, working together towards a common goal. They are not at odds. They are not competing with one another. So really, you shouldn't set them against each other. They're on the same team. It's the basic analogy. We'll have more to say about that in a little bit. But verse 9 transitions us to the second analogy. And we need to look closely at verse 9 because it sets the context for 10 and following. You were here last week, we talked very briefly about this passage because this is a passage, 10 and, 10 and following, that today, in, in a number of Christian circles, read without the benefit of the surrounding context, is often taken to be about an individual Christian, a person, building his, his or her Christian life. And building that Christian life either with good things the, the gold, silver, precious stones, or with not good things, wood, hay, stubble, straw. A Christian, saved, it's really clear, saved, but at the end there's a judgment passed on the life. How, how did you do? And there will be either reward or loss in heaven based on how this Christian built his or her life. That, the passage is often understood that way today, these days. But what I want to argue is that that's not what's going on here. The context around it points us in a different direction. You look at verse 9. Verse 9 strongly emphasizes a divide between two groups, a distinction between two groups. Even physically, as it is physically written down on the page, there is a distinction between the we and the you. When you, when you read it in the original language, the, the we is front-loaded towards the beginning and the the you is at the very last word. Even as you're reading it, it, it says, for we are God's fellow workers. God's field, God's building, that's you. And it's plural. That's you all. Or for a couple of you here, y'all. That's y'all. We are God's workers. There's, there's a great distinction. Now, obviously it showed up before in the analogy of Paul and Apollos, the workers in the field, and the field. The distinction's right there. And he makes it really clear in verse 9. Now, quite obviously, if you look at this from a different perspective, ministers, pastors, congregation, we're all Christians alike, right? We're all sheep. The Bible's really clear that, as it's been said, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There isn't any distinction there. You and me, we both are there. We're both Christians, all of us. Looked at it from that perspective, that's obviously true. That's just not what's going on here. There's another perspective here in this passage. Paul, apostle, Apollos, a pastor, we, distinct from, different from the congregation. Just like in Ephesians 4. Think about that passage. Remember there, Ephesians 4? God gave some to the church. There's a church in the sum. God gave some to the church to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip the saints. Well, aren't those guys saints? Well, sure they are, of course. But from a different perspective, you've got one group given by God to the church to equip this group. Distinction. There is such a thing as a distinction between congregation and, I'll use the word, ministers. Particular people called and assigned to a task by God. It's in Ephesians, it's here in Corinth. We all are God's fellow workers. Y'all are the field. Now, let me call you a building. I'm going to switch analogies because that'll help. See what he does in verse 9? Switching analogies, not concept. 
So what follows on is not about an individual Christian. It's the same thing going on in 9 and previous. It is, look at verse 10. The skilled master builder, there's the laborer, there's the guy in the field who now has switched also. He's not, not a farmer, he's a construction guy. And he's laying not seed in the ground, he's laying a foundation, a building. There's the realm that he works in. Same idea, he's just switched analogies. I'm a worker, you all are a field. Actually, no, now a building. But the context sets what's going on in 10 and following. We are not talking about individual Christians. We are talking about ministers building the church. In the first analogy and also in the second one. I laid a foundation of a building. Somebody else is coming along after me not to water the seed, but to build on the foundation. See, everything carries over. I need to be careful, this guy who follows on after me, because there isn't any other foundation. This is how you judge a faithful worker. Is he building a building on top of the foundation that was laid? The only one permissible, Christ. If he's building kind of over here on top of the dirt, or is trying to lay a different foundation over there, that's a no-go. Not legitimate. There's one foundation, and everybody who follows on after me must build on top of that foundation. And right there is one of the particular nuances for switching analogies. The idea of time and building on something. If he just uses the field analogy, how long does it take from sowing to harvest? Five months? Six months? Not a lot of time there. But there's a difference with a building. Particularly think of construction back in that day before major equipment. To build a building, a significant building... It'd take you decades. Long time. And sometimes people who started the project retired or died before it was over. So it's really important to have the foundation and the plans established so that the follow-on people who maybe couldn't even have been there at the beginning or couldn't go and talk to those who were there at the beginning could see, oh, this is what we are doing. And it's passed down through generations. This is what we are doing. I kind of, in my mind, I'm thinking of like a modern construction site where you have the foundation and the rebar sticks up. And you know where the wall's going because you can see the foundation, you can see the rebar. You see the pipes are, you know where the bathroom's going to be. That sort of thing is, is bearing a testimony to the future generations. This is where this goes. This is how this is built. Um, this one foundation can't go anywhere else, can't change the plan. We established it long ago. It's the usefulness of switching analogies. You need a plan, you need a good foundation, and you need good materials. You could be a builder, building God's building, God's church on the right foundation, and you could do it well or you could do it poorly. With temple-worthy materials, gold, silver, precious stone, or just wood and straw. It could go either way. Something will come about. And at the end, verse 13, each laborer's work will be shown to be what it actually was. Another usefulness of switching analogies. If you only hold into a field analogy, it's a little hard to discern how well the worker did. Think about it. A farmer can do exactly what he should do, and there still be no crop. If the seed's bad, if the ground doesn't have any nutrients, if rain and sun doesn't happen. wasn't his fault. But if you look at a building, and a building is garbage, whose fault was it? The guy who built it. So you can much more clearly ascertain responsibility or fault. You can find the ground for reward in a building. So he switches analogies to kind of emphasize that, and there is a lot about that in the second analogy, is there not? We test it at the end and we find, will this worker receive commendation, reward, or loss? It'll be one or the other at the end, at the day of judgment. And then Paul in 16 and 17 leaves that analogy and turns now to talk just generically to the church. You are this temple that I was just talking about being built. That's you, again, plural, you all. 
You are the temple in which God's Holy Spirit dwells. You've got to think about this. We'll come back to this right towards the end. What God says in verse 17 is sobering. If anyone destroys God's temple, that's you, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. This is God really serious about His temple, His church. Really serious about it. And that's you. comes back to it again at the end. That's you all. His temple. That's the passage. Two main analogies. I've just fleshed them out a little bit. And now I'm going to draw out a couple of observations from the passage. Make two basic points. Here's the first one. God uses ministers in His church. But only God is worthy of glory. God uses ministers in His church, but only God is worthy of glory. Only God is worthy of adoration. Only God is worthy of worship. Only God is worthy of praise and honor. Worthy of being lifted up and followed and given all Attention to, that's God alone, though He uses ministers. A significant point in this passage. And it picks right up at the very beginning with the question of verse 5. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Well, Paul's the apostle who started this whole thing. Paul's the apostle who traveled all across the Mediterranean world, came to Corinth in the face of much opposition, started this church. The whole thing is due to him. And Apollos, the first significant pastor after him, who was a gifted Bible teacher and a very eloquent speaker and preacher, he shepherded these people for quite some time and did a good job. He, to him, many of them owe much of their maturity. This is the apostle. This is the pastor. And the answer is, yeah, they're nobodies. They're just servants. Just servants. You feel the thrust there. We follow these guys, and Paul says, just servants, just a minister, nothing more. And he deflates them. Remember, not putting them, importantly, not putting them into the exact same category as the rest of the congregation. That would work, wouldn't it? It would work to say, you guys are lifting us up and putting us up here on par with God. Come on, we're just like you. We're just people, just like you. That would work. He doesn't do that. He doesn't drop them down into this category. He drops them down into this category. We are not up here. We're not over here either. We're different. See that? That's important. We're just servants. That's all. Only servants. Servants of whom? Well, we saw it in chapter 1, verse 1. An apostle of Christ. Down in chapter 4, verse 1, servants of Christ. See it here too. Servants as the Lord assigns to each. The Lord Jesus is master. He assigns these servants their jobs. Just servants doing what they are told to do. And it is critical work. They each have different roles. One planting, one watering. He says that twice in 6 and 7. And we come down to the next analogy that somebody lays a foundation, somebody builds on top of it, and, and we must see that this is critical work. Without that, nothing happens. If there is no sowing, there is no crop. If there is no watering, there is no crop. If there is no laying of a foundation and laying brick on brick, there is no building. It is critical work. He uses these men, these ministers, in a very important way within His church to build it, to grow it. Now, to to leave the the language of metaphor here, what exactly are we talking about with planting and sowing and building? What, What is that? Well, Paul in verse 11, for a moment, leaves the language himself and gets clear about something. What I'm talking about here is Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. And then he goes right back in and talks about stones and jewels and whatnot. But when he pops out there, he he reveals to us he's still on what he's been talking about for chapters now. 
Think about it this way. When we look at Ephesians 4, and these ministers are, are given names there, two of them the same as here, apostle and prophet and evangelist and pastor-teacher, what do all of those ministers do? What is their, their job? You can think of all of them as proclaimers. They are proclaiming a message. They plant it. They water it. They water with it. They lay this foundation, build upon it, build with it. There is a single message from God that God's ministers are speakers of, are proclaimers of. The message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, period. The Gospel. To know nothing but, to speak of nothing but Him and Him crucified. Ministers that God assigns the church, their job is not to keep the plates spinning and keep all the programs functioning. To keep all the traditions in place. Their job is to speak, to proclaim Christ. It is critical if that does not happen off the lips of a minister, there is no building and there is no crop. This is significant. God has sent people, human beings, with a message of awesome import. He has sent men to from their own lips speak of what He has done in sending to earth His Son. This is the message. God has come to earth. God the Father has sent God the Son to take on a body. He entrusts that message to human beings with flesh and says, proclaim it. Build my church with it. God sent His Son to the earth with a body to keep all of the law of God perfectly, sinlessly, flawlessly, and yet sent Him to the cross cursed. Why? I'm proclaiming this to many of you who know it, but I will proclaim it constantly because we need to hear it constantly. And if you don't know this yet, think about this. Listen. There is a message from God. God has come to earth and gone to the cross to die so that Jesus Himself, through the mouth of His servants, can say to you, Come. I have come to speak to you. Come to Me. Are you weary? Are you burdened? Are you racked with guilt? Are you worn out with trying to make it happen yourself? Come. I have come and gone to the cross and paid a sufficient penalty to wipe off of you completely all guilt before a holy God. Come and find it. Come to Me and find it. And if you come to Me, you will find that and ten thousand things beyond it. You will find Me to be the hope of your heart. The fulfillment of all you've been searching for. It is a profound message from God that remarkably He has entrusted to human beings, ministers that He places in His church and says, take this, lay it down, build up from it. Build up with it. It is the message that every minister must proclaim from a pulpit, must proclaim in every living room, and in every coffee shop, and in every hospital room that he finds himself. I'm saying minister there because I'm talking about me, but I'm saying minister there because I'm also, as you'll see, I'm talking about you. We'll get there in a second. But I'm talking about me and you. I am assigned something. And every God-set-apart minister is assigned to proclaim this message and it must be proclaimed. Without it, nothing happens. God uses ministers uniquely. But the emphasis in the passage is that what ministers do is not decisive. It is important. There must be planting. There must be watering. But it says twice, 
God gives the growth. When you bring in verse 10 below, we see that by the grace of God, ministers do whatever they do. It's the grace of God that enables ministers to act, and it's the grace of God that brings growth from it, that brings any kind of fruit from it. God enables work, and God gives life from it. So then, to whom is praise due? Who is worthy to receive glory and honor and adulation and following and praise? In whom should we boast? The servants? Obviously not. It's folly. It's folly to praise someone who didn't have anything decisively to do with it. It's folly. Only God. It is just plain foolish to praise someone for something they had no control over. God is the only one worthy of praise. Yes, He uses ministers in His church. But only God is worthy of glory for making the message. And only God is worthy of glory for producing fruit from it. That's the basic issue that Paul is addressing in this passage. They lift up one against another and he says, that is ridiculous. Ridiculous. So, we need here at first to keep this this distinction in mind and realize that what Paul means for us to take right at the first level, to take away from this is, as we said sometime back when we saw it in chapter 1, we church must steer wide of anything that sounds like, I follow John Piper. I follow John MacArthur. I follow Kay Arthur, even I follow Beth Moore, whoever. It's just as ugly in us as it was in them. It's just as foolish in us as it was in them. But let's drop it down from big names to us. And I plead with you again, be very careful in how you think about or how you talk about our church our ministries, our ministers, our happenings in comparison to them. Either way. I go to this church. I follow that. Here's what we have going on. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The Bible says that repeatedly because it's true. And we must be very careful. Whatever church you're from, if you're from this church, if you're visiting from somewhere else, that we not lift up one church or one minister against another. We cannot say within our church, I prefer this pastor versus that one. I prefer this elder versus that one. I prefer this Bible study leader, this Sunday school teacher, this choir director against that one or the other. God forbid. So we need to say that because that's at the first level what Paul means. And we've said that before, but I just remind us of that. But being clear on that and clear on the division in chapter 9, of, of verse 9 of, of minister and congregation, I think it would also help us to turn this a little bit and think about it a little more personally. The ministers that God sends to the church to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry then results in all of us becoming ministers. That's the the flow of Ephesians 4 again. To equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, that means that you then, every single one of us, in the church, you then are a minister. And to you then, God has given responsibility to build the church. I think it would help us to think about This message then, because now each of us needs it, not just for how you view me, but how you view yourself. Think about this. God uses you in the church, but glory is due only to Him. God uses you as a minister in the church, but only glory is due to Him. If you were to think that through, What does He mean for you to do in the church? 
right off, we would have to say, that means this place is not for you to come to and take from. Only. It is a place for you to come and take. And to drink and to eat and to be well fed. But it is also a place for you to come and give. To come and minister. How? In what way? Doing what? If we were to keep reading through Ephesians 4, you'd find there it is profoundly gospel-centered ministry. It is not. It is not that your ministry is that you bring the potato chips to the meeting and I do the speaking. You do the speaking. It's important to understand this. In past centuries, the church has missed this. The church in past centuries has much too strongly divided the ministry of a minister from the ministry of the congregation. And it's in past centuries, and some of that bleeds into even today, has separated much too far. Separated what people who have titles do. That's the spiritual work. That's the guy who's qualified to speak about Jesus. What I do is I, I bring the chips. I clean up afterwards. No. No. You read through Ephesians 4, and what you do is you speak the truth to one another in love. And so the body builds itself up in love and in unity. You. Not just me. God uses you to build His church, to plant and water, lay a foundation, build on top of it. What do you use? The Gospel just the same. Just the same. The Gospel just the same. But only glory. Glory is only due to Him. We would think about that. It would affect how we minister to each other. There would be a humbleness and a gentleness as we sit across a table and talk to a brother that we're helping deal with temptation. We'd realize, I'm not the one, I'm not all that, giving it away to you and helping you. I need help too. And anything that's helpful here that comes out of my mouth comes from God and all glory is due to Him. It would produce a gentleness and a humility and a prayerfulness. If you would realize God alone gives the growth. Who do we need to ask to give the growth? God. God, I'm going to speak. God, I'm going to go talk to this person. But if you don't come and speak through these words, there won't be any any result. So would you please come and speak? Does that attitude mark your ministry in the church? I look at my life and I find that you could sum up my my whole existence with two words. Preach and pray. Preach and pray. Preach and pray. Preach and pray. And when I find that it's preach and preach and preach and preach and preach, sometimes it occurs to me, hmm, who do I think produces the results? You see what that says about me? What it says about you? Are you preaching and praying? Are you serving and praying? Sometimes our prayerlessness betrays us. God alone gives the growth. We must go to Him and ask Him, God, would You please give life? Would You take this message that will be on my lips and would You please give life with it? You give the growth. You give grace to me so that I say the right thing at the right moment. Graciously work in that person's heart so that it falls there and sprouts and produces fruit. God uses ministers in His church, me and you both. But the glory is only due to Him. If we have that in mind, we will both work and dependently seek Him and ask Him for help. 
We will work because we realize He uses me. He's got me here for a reason. I have a job that He empowers and produces fruit from. We will work dependently. God uses ministers, but to Him alone is due the glory. That's the first observation from this passage. Paul means to press upon us. And the second one then, as we think about working, as we think about the responsibility that God has given us by putting us here, the second one then moves to cause us to think about accountability and reward or lack thereof. Here's the second observation then. First point establishes that we are ministers, servants of God, and like any servant, eventually the master compensates the servant. There is a payment that follows eventually in all kinds of those relationships. So here's the point. The way God compensates His ministers should both sober us and encourage us. The way God compensates, He gives compensation, He pays. The way He does that should sober us and encourage us. Compensation shows up all throughout this passage. It's in verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. As I said, obviously it's, it's fleshed out more in the second analogy. Everyone should be careful how he works. Verse 12, the materials with which you build will be examined and you'll be found out. And 14, if it survives, reward, and if not, loss. Careful, not loss of salvation. Guys, clearly a Christian. Verse 15 says he himself will be saved. We're not talking about loss of salvation, but a gain or a loss of some sort of unspecified heavenly reward. It doesn't say. Perhaps it's some increased standing or responsibility in heaven. Maybe that you will reign over five cities and you will reign over ten cities. Jesus mentioned that in a parable. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's simply the, the personal direct affirmation from God to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Think about that. Sometimes that's enough, isn't it? Maybe if you're a teenager, you, you live right here and you know this, but you can remember being a kid. Sometimes it is just enough for your dad to look you in the eye and say, that was excellent. You did that very well and I am proud of you. Sometimes that's all you want. I really don't care if you give me anything else other than that. What I want to know from you is that you looked at what I did and you look at who I am and you say, nice, I'm proud. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's what is gained or lost. He doesn't say. He isn't specific. But I'm guessing it's good, knowing God. Don't you think? I don't know what it is, but I'm guessing it's good. And it can be gained or it can be lost, which is sad, but not quite as serious as what he says in 17. If anyone destroys my temple, I will destroy him. That should draw you up short. That is a sober warning. I'll pay to anyone what he or she has coming. And what you earn for building my church well is one thing, and what you earn for building it poorly is another. But that is an altogether different story for what you have if you destroy it. The one of whom Jesus warned us, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell, says, I will destroy the person who destroys my temple, my church. God compensates His ministers and others 
according to how they act towards His church. Another way of saying this would be, God holds us accountable for how we work with His church. And that should sober us right off. It does me. Do you ever think about this? And let me be really clear here. I am not talking about, when I talk about this, we are not talking about the question of, are you a Christian or not? Will you be in heaven or not? Will that be joy upon joy for you? The answer to that is yes. But there is something here, and Paul mentions it again in 2 Corinthians 5. There is an evaluation that God makes of every Christian. And as I'm reading through this, I realize this. Do you realize this? I will stand in front of him, and he will say to me, Steve, he'll use my name, it's talking to me and you. Steve, I put you in that church in Salt Lake City for for those years. How did it go? Let's find out. Anybody have a match? Being a little facetious there, obviously. But there will be an examination And we will all find out which means something. And I say this very, I say this very carefully, and I don't mean this to be disrespectful. I'm not your servant. And ultimately, I do not care what you think of me. Because it doesn't matter. We're going to keep going down here. Paul's going to say exactly that at the beginning of chapter 4. Obviously, in another sense, I am your servant. We are all to be each other's servants, and one of the reasons that he has put me here is to be your servant. Yes, I understand that. But in a very real sense, at the end, when I stand there and give an account, you won't be present. Or maybe you'll be in line behind me, I'm not sure, but last name starts with C, so you can kind of figure that out where you'll be. But but in, in a real sense... This is a one-on-one thing, and you're not in it. What I have done with what He has given me and where He has placed me and what He has taught me will be evaluated. And I will receive what is due me for the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or bad. That's Paul speaking to Christians in 2 Corinthians 5. So this sobers me. It should sober you too because we're not just talking about this minister. We're talking about the ministers at the same time. Which is why I'm using this word. To keep you in it. Because you're in it. You will stand there also. And He will say to you, I put you in that church in Salt Lake City for those years. How did it go? Got a match? What did you do with what I gave you and what I taught you and how I graced you? What did you do with it? And again, there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. We need to be really clear about that. Really clear about that. He delights in you. But there is an evaluation. And there is something to be gained and lost. That is explicit, is it not? So this should sober us as we think, I have a responsibility to this church. What am I building into it? I affirm the gospel. I believe the gospel. I'm on top of the foundation. When you lay a brick tomorrow and the next day, what is it made of? What are you building into this people here? God's temple. And even more pointedly, are you actually taking bricks off? Destroying it. Now the word destroy there, obviously that's an extreme word. It's trying to get a point across, is it not? What's the point? Don't mess with my church. Real clear. Don't mess with my church or else. That's the point. 
Now, he obviously does not mean only in the extreme sense. You know, you can severely cripple it, but as long as you don't destroy it, I'm fine. Obviously does not mean that. He means just simply, don't mess with my church. Why? Because I dwell within those people and I dearly love them. This should sober us if you're attacking it from the outside. But if you're on the inside, this should be a great encouragement, should it not? The omnipotent one says, don't mess with my church. That's you. He says to you all, we have a problem here. You go stand over here. I'm going to talk to somebody. Don't mess with these people. That should encourage you. Unless you're over there. Don't go, don't be over there. Don't. Seek to, with the responsibility and the gracious gifts He's given you, seek to build it. Don't tear it down. Do not, do not give room to discord and strife and self-proud love. Do not walk through here as if it is all about you and you're here to get from it. Frustrated and angry when people won't give you what you think you deserve. Don't walk like that in this place. Walk in this place as someone captured by God in mind, seeking to give away and love. Don't mess with this church. Is that you? It's a little hard to say exactly what that means because it could be a whole host of things. It is clearly strife and discord. But it's also sometimes just simple weak theology, a man-centered gospel. Sometimes it's just about we exist to maintain the traditions. And it weakens the church. It guts it of life. Are you building with wood, hay, and straw? It's, it's hard to be specific because it could be so many different things. I just ask you to ask yourself before God, what am I contributing to this structure? It's easier to turn it around and put our finger on the positive. What should we be aiming at in the church? We've already touched on this. We should be aiming to stand on the foundation of the gospel and build up from it with the gospel. And to draw people to nothing but Christ and Him crucified. A ministry that plants that seed and waters it is a ministry that will produce growth by the grace of God. That's what He means for us each individually to be about. And you should be encouraged by that because there are some of you who are giving significant time and energy to that And you should be encouraged to realize that God says, I will reward that. You will receive from me, perhaps, the commendation that will fill your heart with joy and love. Perhaps there's some other tangible reward, but it's a a compensation that comes from God. It'll be good. And He says to you, you will not be a person who got the short end of the stick. Sometimes we worry when we're giving our lives away, what's in it for me? Jesus told His disciples, you've got to give up everything, but I give it back to you a hundredfold in this life and eternal life in the life to come. God will compensate you. Be encouraged by that. And the last, the last encouragement, I already touched on this a little bit, and I think this is perhaps the sweetest of all, God says, we are His temple. We. Don't you know? He says, don't don't you know? You, you all, plural, you all are God's temple. Now, obviously, there is another sense that He talks about us being a temple in, in the personal, individual sense, that I am God's temple. You are God's temple. But what He's saying here, we are God's temple with God dwelling in our midst indwelt by the Holy Spirit amongst us. He's pleased to run through this place. Pleased to make this His home. 
to make Christ comfortable here. Think about this. He says in verse 17, God's temple is holy. He doesn't mean in the sense of sinless. He means in the sense of set aside, special, protected, like a sanctuary is holy. It's holy ground. Not common. It's distinct, unique, special. That's us. You are, we are, a special place that God sets aside and comes and dwells within and says, and I will defend this from all comers. All those who are your enemy who would seek to destroy you, He stands between them and you. So I think that you should sit there and, and view this as I have relatively young kids. This physically works for me. I can sit down and put my arms around them. Multiples of them. If you have young kids, you can do that. Maybe you can remember doing that. But you should view this as God the Father saying, come sit here. Don't you know? You're my people. I put my arms around you. I shelter you and cover you and protect you. And there is no trouble that I cannot handle. You are His beloved people. He dwells within your midst. He's happy to be there. In fact, has called you aside for that very purpose. He wants what is good for this building, this temple, this people. He has placed within it, think, think about yourself. Think about the person sitting next to you. Placed here by God, gifted by God, to contribute to building this place. Why? Because He wants it built. Think of yourself. The, the things that He has given you, that He has gifted you in, that He has blessed you with. Why? So that you can give them away to this people and be a blessing to them. All because He wants this people to grow and develop. He will use you. He means all glory is due to Him, but He will use you and He means to use you for something marvelous to be developed. A people that is to the praise of His glorious grace. That's what the church is. A place that... Spiritual forces look on and see and marvel at as it shows God and His grace changing people, blessing them, and them growing up into the image of God that they were made in, have fallen from, but are being restored to. It is a marvelous thing that He is doing here with you. If you will Walk with Him and do it. He will compensate at the end. It's an offer you can't refuse. But you don't really want to refuse. Because the, the compensation that you will experience in this life, a hundredfold in this life, He says in Mark 10. Mark 12, 10, I forget. And in the life to come, eternal life. Oh, yeah, there'll be persecutions here. Throws that in too. But it will be a blessing for you to cooperate with God in the building of this His people. And what we'll all experience in together is the Spirit of God dwelling in our midst, our hope and our joy. God is over every minister. Ones like me and ones like you for the purpose of building His beloved church. That's the main point. We shouldn't worship just the servants. We should realize God is over them, but He is using them to build His beloved church, us. So trust Him and cooperate. Please. For your own good, please.
He is good. He will use you. And it will be a blessing. Let me pray. God, help us to understand this. Help us to understand what You do with ministers among Your people. Help us to see ourselves as ministers and to to strongly desire to be used by You. Be a blessing in Your hands for others. Father, I pray that You would sober us, but that at the end You would leave us encouraged, that You walk with us, that You empower us, and that You love us, Your people, with a wide and long and high and deep love. Lord, would You make us people who speak Your Gospel? Would You make us people who are humble, knowing that You're the one who gives results? And would you give us a sense of your goodness to us today that would lead us to rest in you? Bring that to pass, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.